Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Diffusion. If you like your science uncluttered, untempered and real, then stay with us and feel the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. Now on this week's show we've got global warming, we've got evolution, we've got science trivia, we've got it absolutely everything and it's all here. So first up, as usual, we've got the news with Victoria Bond. Could evolution be speeding up? Anthropologists at the University of Wisconsin have come to the stunning conclusion that we are more genetically different from people living 5,000 years ago than they were from Neanderthals. Now, popular belief has led us to think that human evolution has slowed to a crawl in modern humans. However, a study examining data from an international genomics project describes the past 40,000 years as a time of supercharged evolutionary change, driven by exponential population growth and cultural shifts. The team of researchers at the University of Wisconsin estimated that positive selection, just in the past 5,000 years alone, dating back to the Stone Age, has occurred at a rate roughly 100 times higher than any other period of human evolution. The genetic changes are occurring especially around genes related to diet and immunity. This is due to the modification in human diet brought on by the advent of agriculture and the need for resistance to epidemic diseases that became major killers after the growth of sedentary human civilizations. In the words of Johns Hawks from the University of Wisconsin, in evolutionary terms, cultures that grow slowly are at a disadvantage, but the massive growth of human populations has led to far more genetic mutations and every mutation that is advantageous to people has a chance of being selected and driven towards fixation. What we are catching is an exceptional time. Now, Darwin actually coined this idea when he wrote about challenges in animal breeding in his book, Origin of Species. And of course, animals, I mean, that applies to humans as well. He always emphasized that herd size is one of the highest importance for success because large populations have more genetic variation, so more things for evolution to select. The biggest new pathway for selection relates to disease resistance. As people are starting to live in much larger groups and setting, settling in one place one, 10,000 years ago, epidemic diseases such as malaria, smallpox, and cholera began to dramatically shift mortality patterns in people. Malaria is actually one of the clearest examples, Hawks says, given that there are now more than two dozen identified genetic adaptations that relate to malaria resistance, including an entirely new blood type known as the Duffy blood type. Now, it's been a little bit too long since we last mentioned our old friend, the Large Hadron Collider, and that's LHC for friends. Some of you may remember that it, after a helium leak last September, the LHC was shut down in order to fix the malfunctioning parts which they claimed were shipped from America. <laughs> well, fans of the LHC can rejoice once again, because for the first time, all eight of its sectors have been cooled down to their operating temperature of minus 1.9 Kelvin. Now that's about roughly minus 270 degrees Celsius, which is colder than deep space. 
all under Switzerland. So let's keep our fingers crossed and hope that everything runs smoothly. And maybe we'll learn a thing or two about how the universe was made. All right, there's news this week of a, that the Large Hadron Collider, when it starts up again, will be testing a hypervelocity propulsion drive. What's a hypervelocity propulsion drive, Ian? Well, the theory is that, well, the theory is general relativity, in fact. Hilbert, famous mathematician and physicist, worked out a little-known aspect of general relativity early last century, was that if you get particles going very close to the speed of light, then when they head towards a stationary mass, something that's not moving so fast, then instead of just hitting it and pushing the, the mass a little bit or making a dent, it would actually be repulsed by this stationary mass with some sort of force so that they don't actually hit. And the object that's hit or repulsed or pushed away would actually go a little bit faster than just the impulse momentum from the particle. So it's, if you have a space drive based on this, assuming that this bizarre idea works, then it'd be like getting a fan and pointing it at your sail to push you forwards instead of out the back to push okay. you away. So at the moment, the way um, propulsion is driven is by, um, by producing a force in the opposite direction to what you want to go at. The old Newtonian, yes. The, the old Newtonian... Reaction yeah. to action. That's right. So you, you fling stuff out the back and you go forwards, right? That's, yeah. that's rocket propulsion. That's the way we do things. But in this case, you'd be wanting to get a repulsion from the thing you're shooting at, which mm -hmm. in this case would have to be your own spacecraft. Mm -hmm. So they're going to put a mass in next to the Large Hadron Collider. And when they spin the particles up very, very fast, they'll see if there's a repulsive force felt by this mass that's near these fast-moving particles. And if it's true, then we might be able to build a space drive that could make us go very, very fast indeed. And in fact, they're saying, physicist Franklin Felber is the guy who's published the paper on this hypervelocity propulsion drive, which are the keywords in Google if you want to look it up. <laughs> I'll be sure I remember that one. But the bizarre thing is you would think, if you're going really, really fast suddenly, that the G-forces are going to smash you flat, right? Mm -hmm. Like, come on. Um, but he's saying that if you follow what's known as a geodetic trajectory, which means that you're looking at the way gravity bends space, because in general relativity, space isn't flat, it's all curved by gravitational sources. And just like all those science fiction authors have been telling us for the last hundred years, <laughs> you've got to have your mass detector telling you where the big heavy masses are, like planets and stars, because they bend space. And this space drive even though it's slower than light, unlike the ones in the stories, which were all faster than light, hmm. it still would, wouldn't work normally. If you've, you've got to move in the curves by the, say, in the sun, going in orbit around the sun is where the space wants you to go for a straight line. So if you go in the curve around the nearest mass, whatever it is, then they say, according to the theory, that you won't have the G-forces smashing you flat and you'll only have to worry if you go away from that curve. If you try and go in a straight line, there'll be tidal forces from the mass, and that might hurt you. So you, ha you basically have to follow the gravitational pull, the or curve. follow around the curve. You have to calculate the, the curve, space. get your onboard computer to calculate the curve in space, mm -hmm. and follow that, and then shoot yourself with these fast particles, and then you'll bounce away along the curve 
very, very fast. But not faster than the speed of light. But a no significant fraction. So what happens is you'll travel so fast you'd have time dilation. So very little time will pass for you as you travel. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, back on Earth, the usual rate will go. And you might get to the nearest star and back in, say, 50 years. And maybe you won't age very much at all. So you don't lose most of your life just traveling in a spacecraft on your own. But when you come back, 50 years will have passed. And maybe this is the way to do it. Hmm. Yeah, you should. You wouldn't be able to grow too attached to people on Earth then, if this was the way you would. It's were a one-way traveling. ticket to the future. Yeah. And fame and glory. I guess so. And your investments. Just think, if instead of investing in something dangerous, that you just did simple, basic term deposit with compound interest in a <laughs> government bank, yes. in a government that's unlikely to disappear in fifty years then maybe you'd have an investment when you come back that might be worth something. Assuming you were actually paid salary at the same time. Ah, so that's a whole (laughs) different spin on space travel. I never really would have thought of it as an investment opportunity. And it's a one-way ticket to the future. Ah, interesting. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. news, new research demonstrates that the placebo effect may not all be in our heads. Researchers at the University Medical Center in Hamburg used functional magnetic resonance imaging to look at the activity of nerves in the spinal cord. They told the 15 healthy participants that they would be treated with either an anesthetic cream or a placebo. Then they looked at the nerve impulses in their spines. The patients who were led to believe that they were receiving the real treatment demonstrated a much lower activity in their nervous cells in the spinal cord. So it seems that by simply believing that a pain treatment is effective, you can actually dampen pain signaling in a region of the spinal cord called the dorsal horn, which suggests a powerful biological mechanism. Traditionally, experts have viewed the placebo effect as a purely psychological thing, but the new research is the latest in a growing body of evidence that there is an important physical component. Just what turns down pain signaling in the spine when a placebo is given is still unclear. So there's a lot more research to be done. And last but not least, in world news, a top polar scientist claims that the Arctic Ocean could be largely ice-free and open for shipping in the summer in as little as a decade. Professor Wadhams from the University of Cambridge has been studying the Arctic ice since the 1960s. He's saying... The newest Catlin Arctic study data supports the new consensus view, which is that based on seasonal variation of ice extent and of thickness, changes in temperature, winds, and especially of ice composition, the Arctic will be ice-free in summer within about 20 years, and much of that decrease will happen in the next 10 years. What makes the lightning? What makes the thunder? What makes the rain and sleet? and snow what makes the weather what makes the weather what makes the weather come and go 
Weather is made by the action of heat on water and on air. We live at the bottom of an ocean of air, an ocean of air, an ocean of air. We live at the bottom of an ocean of air that's called the atmosphere. The atmosphere is made of dust and water vapor and different kinds of gases like nitrogen and oxygen, the oxygen we're breathing in. <sighs> the atmosphere protects us from the burning sunlight. It also makes the weather. The snow and sleet and hail and rain are caused by air, as I'll explain later. We live at the bottom of an ocean of air. That ocean of air has a motion of air. A motion of air in the ocean of air we call the atmosphere. That was Tom Glazer with What Makes the Weather. And you really only get music like that here on Diffusion, I've got to say. We're very proud of it. Very proud of it indeed. And um, let's see, we were going to do something else. Worms. Yes, that's right, worms. I was going to talk about worms. Here I am. It's always struck me as odd that some of the many animals that we hear about with their revolting habits and terrifying appearances haven't achieved greater infamy as monsters in our campfire stories. When it comes to mythology, we're just as guilty of making up fictitious monsters as we are of maligning real ones. Perhaps it's because a lot of these really scary creatures are small and the human concept of monsters requires that they be large, like this. <coughs> So tonight I'd like to talk about an animal that has been sadly overlooked when it comes to frightening our kids and ourselves. Consider the name Eunice Aphrodite. Isn't it a lovely name, so musical and lyrical? Well, this beautiful name is attached to a seriously ugly and frightening animal. Eunice Aphrodite is an errant carnivorous marine polychaete, which means that it's a free-swimming oceanic worm which eats other animals. Eunice is a raptorial feeder, which means it seizes its prey like an eagle. Unlike an eagle, it doesn't use talons, but, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's take a broader look at this animal before we get to the good stuff. Both common earthworms that we find in our gardens and marine polychaetes that we find in the sea belong to the animal phylum Annelida, which comprises the segmented worms. The great French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck named the phylum Annelida when he noticed the little rings separating the segments of these worms, and he remembered that the Latin for little ring was annelus. However, unlike earthworms, errant marine polychaetes don't have smooth cylindrical bodies for pushing through soil. They have flattened undulating bodies for swimming. Along their flanks, they have bundles of long bristles, or chaetae, emerging from the lateral or side walls of each segment. Their parapodia, which are leg-like extensions of the body wall from which the keti emerge, are much larger and fleshier than the almost non-existent parapodia of earthworms. This all makes sense when you consider that earthworms need to have smooth flanks for burrowing, while Eunice needs fleshy paddles for swimming. So the overall picture of Eunice so far is of an undulating, dorsoventrally flattened, rather spiky-looking worm. But it's only a worm, I can hear you cry. Well, it's very true that Eunice Aphrodite is a worm. It's also a mobile, carnivorous, scary-looking worm, the largest specimen of which was found right here in Sydney when two scuba divers turned over a rock and found one three metres long. And even then, you don't really know how scary it is until you put one under a dissecting microscope and look at its mouth. Remember the alien films? 
with the large intergalactic bipedal lobsters with irreversible jaws? I'm pretty sure that Mr. Geiger, who designed the alien, got the idea from looking through an invertebrate zoology text for scary-looking creatures and found one when he came to a chapter on polychaetes. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. The jaws of Eunice Aphroditoire, when seen up close, are some of the most terrifying raptorial and masticatory organs ever evolved. An errant polychaete seizes its prey by everting its pharynx. What this means is that the worm turns its mouth and part of its throat inside out, exposing up to four fearsome-looking jaws. When the worm isn't feeding, the jaws lie inside the throat, or pharynx. When the pharynx is everted, frequently with explosive force to grab the victim before it swims away, the jaws are now at the very front, or anterior end of the animal, and just in the right position for grabbing prey. Frequently, these jaws contain poison. So next time you think it's safe to go back in the water, forget about sharks. You might just find yourself in a savage twist of irony, worm bait, and don't say, I didn't warn you. Makes me hungry. And you're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. That's diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and across the world on our podcast. Next up, we've got some science trivia. Um, our uh, One of our resident med students, uh, Victoria Bond, has got some interesting stuff to talk about. What you got for us there, Victoria? Well, the first one is a convenient segue. Does anybody know what the word placebo actually means in Latin? I... something. I should know. Um. Ends, in, ends in O, that means it's first person singular. To I please? can give you... Oh, perfect. I was going to give you a hint, but I, that's... I, I please. I shall please. I shall please. Mm. Okay. So, that's actually... I, I like that fact myself. Mm. Um, here's a pretty easy one. Does anyone know what the only land animal that can't jump is? The only land animal that can't jump. Is that extant or extinct or both? <laughs> it's extant. Because I know Brontosaurus couldn't jump. <laughs> it's extant. I don't know. What is it? What do you think? Maybe hazard a guess? Land out, sorry. Do any uh, of our callers know? Elephant. Ah, uh, there you go. It's the elephant. That's the correct answer. Okay. No basketballing elephants. No, no, no. But they get on those little red things pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and here's one for our physicists. Um, laser, you may or may not know, is actually an acronym. Do you know what the acronym stands for? It's a bit, it's a bit easy for me then. I did physics. <laughs> Do you want it or shall I let someone else have a try? Go on. I, I, Go I, I used to know hitters, man. We could Light have it again. amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Beautiful. Lovely. Oh, this is too easy. 
Um, what physicist discovered that a wave's frequency changes when the source and the observer are in motion relative to one another? I have some options. Doppler? Mm. <laughs> right on the ball. He just had to well, blurt it out. <laughs> <laughs> and so, do you think you could explain? <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm running a bit behind here. Ian and Locke are up on a point <laughs> each. I've got a major comeback on my hands. You're losing uh, this nerd trophy. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about the Doppler effect, Locke? Ding, 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 ding. Yes, I can. Victoria, uh, the Doppler effect is when you get uh, shifting in frequency, in, in sound frequency, due to relative motion. No, I couldn't really tell you about the Doppler shift, actually. Well, that was actually pretty much it. And okay, cool. um, there's mm. actually a technique in medicine called uh, the Doppler ultrasound, which lets you know which direction um, fluid is moving in. Mm -hmm. And it uses the Doppler effect to find that out. Okay, cool. Great. They also use Doppler shift in astronomy, if I believe. Yes, yep. yes, they do. Mm. Indeed, because there's redshift and blue shift, whether things are coming towards us or away from us. There you go. Cool. All right. Well, on the on the theme of extinct creatures, how many brains did a stegosaurus have? Was it one, two, three, or four? Oh, I remember reading about this when I was a kid. They used to think that stegosaurus might have had a second brain in its pelvic region, but I don't know what the answer was. I don't know if that's true or not. It might just have been an extra big bundle of nerves. I'm saying um, I'm saying two. I'm actually going to say no. I think it's still the one. It's all yeah. definitional. Um, I think they've got one actual brain, but as you say, there's a big ball of nerves. It would act sort of like a second brain. Yeah, so it was a long-standing belief that Stegosaurus had three brains, one in the three head, brains. one in the back, and one in the tail. But mm. it actually, sh they, they found out that the extra brains were just energy stores for muscles. Just yes! Big old fat pads. Even Stevens, I'm up there with you guys. <laughs> fat for brains. They weren't I I enlarged ganglia or anything like that. No, just um, energy sources. So old Steggy was as dumb as they say. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Well, he's well armoured, I'll give him that. All right, true or false? Most of the dust in your home is made of human skin. True. 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 Particularly my place. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Ian. Uh, except for two, two or three weeks ago, that was definitely outback red dirt. That wasn't my skin. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so this is one for you, Pat. Where are yeah. the smallest bones of the human body and what oh, are they no. called? Oh, <laughs> the smallest bones of the human body are in the middle ear. Mm -hmm. uh, Very good. Oh, Malleus, Incus, and Stapes. Beautiful. And Honestly. what do they stand for? If I got that wrong, I'd... Oh, hammer, <laughs> anvil, anvil, and syrups. <laughs> if I got that wrong, I would have failed my exam. <laughs> and, and what do those bones what's the, do? What's the general uh, name they, for them? The general nickname for them. And the general name for those bones, what are they called? Uh, I know them as with bones of the middle ear. Otoliths. Oh. Mm. I should know that as well. Mm. I did them in fish biology. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do they do? They, uh, they're responsible for conducting sound from the outer ear to the um, oval window. Oh, I thought they just um, dampened down the sound. Oh, they do? Yeah. They do. They dampen down the sound. The there we go. All right. I, well. thought, I thought they transmitted it from um, the tympanum to the cochlea. I don't know if they... Eardrum. The muscles maybe oh, dampen okay. them down. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, it's the muscles. Oh. So yeah, two med students struggling through I've got to basic hit the anatomy. Books again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's one for our Australian listeners. Yeah. What is the largest living creature on Earth? Let me give you a bit of a hint. Living creature on Earth. Mm. Oh, living structure. Structure. Ah, uh, mm. you've given it away. <laughs> Blue whale. No. Well, 
I mean, people say the Great Barrier Reef is the largest living thing oh, on Earth. Gotcha. I'm inclined to think it's a collection of the the largest collection of living things on Earth. But if you want to call a collection of structure, I'd go the the good old GBR. Yep, it's the Great I think Barrier you've Reef. Got it. The GBR. There you go. Beauty. So true or false? Is lightning three times hotter than the sun? <laughs> oh, never clue. I'm going to go with false. False. I'd say true. It's true. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's why when a tree is struck by lightning, it explodes because all of the water inside it instantaneously boils. Because if it was only as hot as the sun, it wouldn't explode. (laughs) (laughs) Well, give or take, you know, a few suns and there you go. Mm. What is the longest cell type in the body? Oh, nervous Uh, tissue. Yeah, beautiful. Motor neuron. Yeah, the nerve cell. Got to be a nerve cell. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. I have a few magic facts here about uh, the number 30. Seeing as, you know, 30 is a number fairly close to my heart because I will be turning 30 soon, and some of us in the room are yeah, over I was, 30. I was just about to ask, why doesn't everybody say what they were doing 30 years ago? But that kind of <laughs> Some <laughs> of that, us weren't that, here. That really scrubs you guys out, doesn't it? Minutes to go. Okay, right. well, 30 is the sum of the squares of the first four whole numbers. So 1, 2, 3, 4, square them, add them together, that's 30. It's the atomic number of zinc. It is the age at which you reach your peak bone density. And this one is my personal favorite. 30 minutes is the length of time a pig's orgasm lasts. <gasps> I hate pigs. <laughs> I'm extremely three, jealous. So the next time someone says, joking. you pig. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, that's all from us here at Diffusion. If you've got any feedback for us, if you love your science or you like science or you, you don't like your science or maybe just a little bit know, titillated or something, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Pat wrote it down twice, so I'd say it twice. Or subscribe <laughs> to our podcast, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. That's dub- oh, no, you only wrote it twice, didn't you, Pat? Okay. <laughs> On today's show, we've had the lovely Victoria Bond, the even more lovely Ian Wolfe, and the utterly gorgeous Pat Ruby, and yours truly, the hideously ugly Lachlan Whatmore. Diffusion is produced and panelled here in the studios of 2SER Sydney by our very capable producer and paneler, Ian the Wolfman Wolf. My name's Lachlan Whatmore, and join us next, next week for more Diffusion Science Radio. It's a scientific fact A scientific fact It has to be correct It has to be exact Because it is, because it is a scientific fact It's a scientific fact That our high and low tides Are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon It's been proven to be true Like one and one are two It's checked and double checked A fact that can be backed Because it is, because it is a scientific fact It's a scientific fact That there are belts of radiation in outer space Which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome
It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Even scientific facts are not perfectly exact, but they are as exact as it is humanly possible to make them at the time. It's a scientific fact, a scientific fact. It has to be correct, it has to be exact, because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Scientific fact. 